millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. I am joined by a colleague of mine, Professor Michael Clark, and we are going to be talking about a new book that uh, Michael has released called Terrorism and Counterterrorism in China, Domestic and Foreign Policy Dimensions. Uh, Michael is the editor and has contributed a chapter to the book. Some of the other contributors are Julia Fumilaro, Andrew Small, Zunyo Zhou, Mordecai Chadziza, Sean Roberts, and Raphael Pantucci. There is a lot to discuss about what is happening in China and I would like to start off simply by saying that the Chinese Communist Party calls this part of China the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Some of the independence movements call it East Turkestan. For me, I'm going to call it Western China. And during this discussion, I will be asking some questions that have been sent in by some of our listeners. And I also thank Digby Howes for being one of the most patient listeners in podcast history. If you'd like to send in some questions or thoughts to our podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter using Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook at the Policy Forum Pod Group or send us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. And don't be afraid while you're there to give us a five-star rating. Thank you very much. And leave us a review as well. Those kind of ratings really do help in terms of getting our podcast out there and also bringing in some of the talent as well. And now I would like to welcome Professor Michael Clark to the studio. G'day, Michael. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great. So your area of expertise is terrorism and specifically counterterrorism in China. Uh, I'd like to start off by geeking out a little bit. Um, Michael, what is your definition of terrorism? Sure. Uh, this is a great question. Um, so in terms of the actual book itself, um, all the contributors worked off a, a, a common definition of terrorism. This is really based off an Israeli scholar's work. So Boaz Gaynor is his name. And his definition really has three parts. So he defines terrorism in the following way. So one, the essence of the activity has to be violent. Two, the aims must be political. And three, the activity must directly target civilians as, civilians as victims. Um, and, and there are a number of key reasons why we chose to, to go ahead with that particular definition of terrorism. Uh, and this is really for, for two reasons analytically in terms of the wider terrorism studies literature. Uh, so one is the, the need we felt to move away what's often termed an actor-based uh, approach to terrorism. So this is actor-based approaches tend to focus on specific actions of specific terror, terrorist groups, uh, whereas Gaynor's approach is really about uh, what's termed an action-based analysis. So this is about terrorism not being the 
action of a particular group, but rather identifying terrorism as a particular method or strategy that can be deployed by any actor, uh, whether that's a non-state actor or indeed a state actor. Um, the second reason reason is really, uh, I suppose, conceptual and, and theoretical. It's really about uh, incorporating some interpretivist approaches to terrorism, so emerging from the critical terrorism studies literature. Um, so this is about exploring the discursive construction of terrorism and how, how these constructions shape our understandings of the phenomenon and also shape policy responses to that. And this is particularly important in the Chinese context, uh, given that a lot of the information that we have to date is based on state sources uh, coming directly from the Chinese government. So there's a need to, to adopt a very critical approach uh, to, 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 that, to that data. I'm worried that there's an, there's an element missing of that definition. If you just had an assassination of the prime minister, you're not actually using fear as a tool to change policy. You're just using straight out violence. So there's, you're not trying to cause terror. You're not trying to cause intense fear. I would have thought that a working definition has to have a threat. I mean, like you, you could even have the threat of violence if if you don't change policy X, Y, Z, I'm going to let a bomb off in the train. Or we've just let a bomb off in the train. If you don't change policy X, Y, Z, there will be more bombs. You're creating fear in the general population or civilians, and it's their fear which is going to pressure the government into changing their policy. So if it's a one-off attack, is it is that not just an assassination or not just murder? Um, it has to have the threat of future attacks, correct? Yeah, I mean, this, this is, this is a, a great point. So this is really this issue of how we delineate between what constitutes terrorism and what just simply uh, could constitute you know, quote-unquote uh, crime or just simply, you know, uh, a homicide in that sense. So in terms of Gaynor's definition and the definition that we adopt in in the, in, in the book, uh, I suppose this issue of the linkage between, um, you know, this idea of utilisation of fear is kind of implicit in his second criteria about the aims must be political. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this implies that the use of violence is geared towards a particular end. So is the violence is just not the end in itself. It's a means to that to a particular end. Um, so th- there, there's a particular issue here around whether particular attacks, and we might talk about this later, uh, in Xinjiang, for instance, um, that have been reported uh, constitute acts of terrorism in the sense of being future-oriented in terms of manipulating fear to, 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 result, to result in policy change, or whether they're just act, random acts of, of violence or spontaneous acts of violence. There's a real real issue there. Right. And so just to my last uh, question on, on the theory, um, and you said it does encompass state, uh, state-led state uh, mm. terrorism as well. Yeah. Um, so if you look back to, say, the Second World War and you look at the V1 rockets and things like that, they were, they were targeting a population and they were there hopefully to try and pressure um, the population to change government policy to you know, give in and so on. Would that, in, in declared war, would that also come as terrorism, uh, register as terrorism as well or classify as terrorism? Yeah, again, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's some... Uh, issues around international law there, um, given the fact that it was uh, in the context of a declared war between, you know, state state actors. I mean, the reason why that we adopted this particular definition in this context is to grapple with the somewhat controversial issue in the Chinese context um, about, you know, whether the Chinese state is in fact engaged in a form of state 
terrorism uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, and by Gainer's definition, by using that, we're, in, we're able to, to, to deal with that much more explicitly rather than couching it in perhaps a little bit less um, straightforward manner. You, in your book, you've, you've said that the, the terrorism that China is dealing with is part of the fourth wave of terrorism. Can you give us a quick idea what the first, second and third waves were and how it fits? With yeah, this sure. Um, so the, the idea of there being four waves of, of terrorism comes from David Rappaport, uh, major academic in the field of terrorism studies, was once the editor of one of the major journals in the field, Terrorism and Political Violence. Uh, so he had a paper uh, a number of years ago now detailing the sort of typology of how we might conceive of the historical development of terrorism over time. And so the four waves, the first uh, he highlights is sort of the anarchist wave of the late 19th century. Uh, the second wave is the wave related to national self-determination movements uh, sort of beginning around the end of the Second World War period and into the 1960s. The third wave is the so-called New Left movements, uh, again, of the 1960s and 70s, uh, largely inspired, of course, by various elements of protests related to the Vietnam War. And the fourth wave uh, that he identifies is really based on an, a, 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 the development of this idea that we have a wave of, of Islamist-inspired terrorism really coming stemming from two things, uh, the Iranian Revolution of 79 and, of course, the war in Afghanistan, sort of beginning almost coterminous with, it, with each other. And so that's kind of the, the, the wider context in terms of the terrorism studies literature. The relationship of the idea of the four, four waves to, to what's occurring in Xinjiang is really trying to address this point of the mobilisation of a particular segment. And again, and we make this clear in the book, a very small element of uh, a Uyghur militancy that may be seen to be inspired by that same wave of political uh, Islamization. Can you give me a bit of a broad stroke idea of the ebbs and flows of history and how it's impacted that region? If we begin with uh, the current Chinese government's claims uh, with respect to Xinjiang, it's quite a, it's an interesting sort of jumping off point. So Beijing has released a number of white papers on this particular issue over the last sort of decade or so, you know, which makes this kind of uh, boilerplate claim that Xinjiang you know, has been a part of China uh, since, anci- since ancient times, so going yeah. back to the Han Dynasty. And th- yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm trying to yeah. get, back, get to mm. is, is that um, contested history yeah. of the yep. region, what the Chinese view of it is, or sorry, what, what the uh, Communist Party view mm. of it is and what other views may be. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, again, the sort of the, the, the current version of history that the, the Chinese Communist Party wants to wants wants to put out there is that essentially that history from really the, the Han Dynasty onwards is a story of the continual development of Chinese uh, state power and consolidation over Xinjiang and and what it does is sort of read back into history its current claims to the region. Yet if we sort of widen the lens a bit away from those official claims, you can actually see very clearly that the region's been contested for centuries. And James Millward, um, one of the major historians on, on what is now known as Xinjiang, uh, in fact, wrote in part, wrote a book about this called Eurasian Crossroads. Uh, and that kind of sums up his, his viewpoint in terms of a world historical view of the region's place. Uh, so it's always been this contested inner Asian zone sort of lying between the civilizations of China to the east, the subcontinent to the south, and then ultimately Russia and and Europe uh, and the Middle East uh, sort of to to the west and southwest. And so this has always generally been seen, certainly by most Western scholars, as kind of one of of the key engines uh, for the development of conflict 
in, in the region. We look at some of the current drivers for uh, sovereignty over China's western regions, and part of that is energy resources and raw materials and so on. George Friedman would say that it's actually a geographic buffer zone to the west, whereas what you're saying may be that given that it is a piece of territory where it is the crossroads to numerous civilizations, that there is a geopolitical driver there to actually have ownership of that land. So you get to reach into other people, other civilizations rather than those civilizations reaching into yours. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to sort of sort of riff off the, the George Friedman thing, thing for a minute. I mean, this idea of Xinjiang uh, as being this buffer zone, I mean, it's really interesting in a historical context, because certainly even in the late Qing period, um, and again, James Millwood has, has written extensively on this, is there's sort of a debate within the Qing court, court about, you know, should Xinjiang be incorporated as a regular province of, of the empire or, is, or should it remain uh, sort of a, a, as its own sort of distinct territory directly under the rulership of the Manchu ruling house. So there's a question here about um, the ways in which it was perceived historically. Now, the ultimate endpoint of that Qing debate was in fact to incorporate Xinjiang. So Xinjiang officially became a province of uh, the Qing dynasty uh, in the late 1880s. Um, yet that debate sort of re-emerges again in the middle of the 20th century, of course, with the turmoil in, in, in China proper uh, during the from really from the late 1920s right through to the to the late 1940s when the PRC was ultimately established. In terms of my reading of this history, there's a, there's a real shift under the PRC. So particularly by uh, the end of the Cold War, you have a decision or sets of decisions that seem to have been made where Xinjiang is no longer to be perceived of as that kind of buffer region between uh, China and, and what was then the Soviet Union. Um, but now it's been, uh, there's an attempt to re-envisage it, re-imagine it uh, as actually uh, a conduit uh, for Chinese power and influence. Just, just as you were saying before, about reaching into other civilizational zones. Uh, and, and the way in which this is most immediately reflected now is, of course, under the Belt and Road Initiative, where Xinjiang is, is really lies at the hub of no, a number of the key so-called macroeconomic corridors, uh, reaching into Russia, Central Asia, and to the Middle East as well. So it's, it's a fundamental uh, in my view, a fundamental reimagining of what Xinjiang's role is and what it can contribute to the PRC. All right, so let's let's keep it in the modern day and, and let's let's shift it into the actual counterterrorism space. Uh, can you give me an idea of the current threat landscape uh, in China's West from a CT perspective? Yeah, I mean, this is again, this is a, a somewhat of a problematic um, problematic issue, and again, a number of a number of the contributors to the book deal and grapple with this particular issue. I mean, it's problematic uh, really for probably two or three main reasons. One uh, is the issue to do with the availability of information and, and data. Uh, given uh, some of the opacity uh, uh, with respect to the Chinese state's reporting of terrorist incidents. The second issue concerns, again, related to the Chinese state's handling of this, is the ways in which the Chinese state has defined terrorism over time. Uh, and the third issue, uh, in fact, really relates to our, our ability to discern, to discern um, specific militant organisations that may or may not be involved in attacks or have been involved in attacks in, in Xinjiang or related to, to Xinjiang. So in terms of, of the first issue about availability of information, uh, it, this, is, this has been something that those of us who've been following this issue really since 9-11 uh, have really 
uh, tried to deal with in a, in a number of ways because China released its first white paper on so-called uh, terrorism in Xinjiang in January 2002. Now, that particular document is interesting for a number of reasons. One, uh, by the very fact that the Chinese state after so long had decided to, to at least uh, go through the motions of providing some form of uh, transparency about its claims to to violence and terrorism in Xinjiang, and the second issue uh, that was in, that that was important about that particular document is the the particular narrative that it put out about terrorism. So again, much like the white papers on Xinjiang's history more broadly, it tries to read back into to the immediate past, really into the decade. Uh, from from uh, sort of really the early 1990s to the events of 9-11, tries to read back into that period and say, well, actually, all these events of what used to the Chinese state used to refer to as separatism or splitism are actually now defined as terrorism, and in particular, terrorism uh, due to the work of one particular organisation, the East Turkestan uh, uh, Islamic Movement, or ETIM. Now, this was quite striking because many uh, observers who'd followed the region for a long time. This was the first they'd ever heard of this particular organisation, ETIM. This raised a number of questions about whether, in fact, we could could uh, could could accept that this group existed or not. And of course, that's been an ongoing debate really for the last uh, 15, 16 years now about whether, in fact, ETIM ever existed as a, as a functioning terrorist organisation. And uh, a number of contributors to the book deal with that issue. So Sean Roberts's chapter, for instance, uh, details the development of, of this narrative about the existence of ETIM over time uh, and really uh, sort of grapples with the core issue about how external observers have utilised and often repeated uh, Chinese government claims. Uh, somewhat uncritically, and how this has created a number a number of problems. About yeah, how I, I think Andrew that. Small's chapter. Goes Andrew into Small does that too. Yeah. Just looking at the western region of China, that is one of China's minority regions where we've mentioned the Uyghur people. Uh, China has a number of minorities, and there is a phrase in China which is the Mingzu Wenti, and directly translated, that is the minority question. What exactly is the question they are asking and why do they feel they have to ask it? Yeah, uh, look, I mean, again, this is a historically is an interesting question. I mean, how, how do we, how does the party frame uh, how it deals with ethnic minority populations? To answer that question, you have to go back to the, really the ideological basis of the party, you know, Marxism, Leninism, and in particular, the imprint of the Soviet uh, example and experience. So, as the Chinese Communist Party was struggling to come to power, it developed uh, so what was then called a, uh, an approach to the nationalities question, which is borrowed directly from the, the Soviet experience. So this was the idea of, you know, do we sell to the minority peoples the idea that they will have some kind of right, whether that's theoretical or practical, uh, to self-determination in the future should the Communist Party gain power. Now, of course, uh, when the Communist Party did come to power, uh, it developed this idea of so-called national regional autonomy uh, for, for, for ethnic minorities uh, throughout China. Uh, and, and really the basis of this, and this sort of goes to this core issue of, you know, what was the minority or what is the minority question they're talking about? Um, if we kind of look back really from the present vantage point, it seems the question really is about, you know, how do or how did sorry, how does the Chinese Communist Party attempt to have its governance of ethnic minorities viewed as legitimate 
uh, by those populations themselves. And there's been a number of different pro- approaches over time. One was the, this idea of national regional autonomy. Uh, certainly in the, the, the uh, post-Mayor era as well, you have another set of ideas about a liberalisation of the party's approach to, to ethnic minorities. So, for instance, with respect to the Uyghurs and Tibetans, much greater freedom for them to uh, practice uh, various elements of their culture, whether that's language or, or religion. Uh, and of course, now we've got a, a, a yet another phase in the development of the party's approach uh, to the ethnic minority question. And the answer the party seems to be doing, putting forward now, is that we want effectively assimilation. Uh, no more of the sort of softly, softly persuasive approach. Now it's, it, it seems to be, unfortunately, much more full bore towards full-out assimilation. Mm, I'm, I'm going to move to some of the techniques and strategies that the Communist Party is using in Western China. But I just wanted to go back to the threat landscape a little bit. Um, you've ha- had a, an approach that is very uh, Beijing perspective, as in looking at Beijing's influence on the region. Um, yet in your book, you actually list that there is a long list of um, violent acts um, that are either in China's Western region or that have been perpetrated by Uyghurs in other parts of China. There, there's no doubt that there is, there are violent acts being carried out in that area or by people from that area. Are you saying that all of that is simply a reaction to state oppression? Um, are you saying that that is part of an independence movement or that there is an element of jihadism in there, but that jihadism is a reaction to China's methods? How, how, do, you, how do you frame the violent acts that are definitely happening in this part of China? Yeah, look, I mean, the book uh, makes clear and in my introduction, in, introductory chapter to the book, I make clear at the end, and in the, at the end of that particular uh, chapter that all of the contributors to the book, nobody denies that there has been violent incidents that can be defined as terrorism by the, the definition of terrorism that we, we've adopted. The question, though, is how does that relate to the issue of, A, there being any organised militant movement uh, in the region or connected to the region? Two, is there that, that, that issue that you've touched upon, what is the relationship between that violence and the state? And we again, a, a number of the contributors grapple with this explicitly, as Sean Roberts uh, does in particular, this idea that there essentially has been, uh, if we look closely or what we know of the violent incidents and we map these and, and we construct a narrative around them, is that there seems to be cycles, you know, peaks and troughs of violence. And this, in fact, mirrors what we know historically. For instance, what happened in the 1990s, there were clear peaks and troughs in in violence. So in the 1990s, for instance, there was very few violent incidents in the early 1990s, but there was a peak really from 1995 to around 97, 98, and then drops away again. Uh, and this is this is interesting because if we then compare compare and contrast that to the post 9/11 era, it almost mirrors that. Uh, process again. So the question then becomes the issue of how do we, how do we then go about uh, forming uh, theories about causality here and relationship between the violence, between violence and particular strategies, techniques of governance and coercion uh, that may have may or may not have been used by the state. 
And so the latest round or uptick of, of violence really occurs from 2009 onwards. So there was the Urumqi inter-ethnic riots uh, in, in, in Xinjiang in July 2009. Now, those events themselves cannot in any way be classified as terrorism, although the Chinese government has tried its best to classify it as terrorism. They have much more similarities with forms of civil disobedience and just simply spontaneous forms of rioting and, 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 and violence. You're speaking specifically of the large clashes that happened in the capital yep. where groups of Uyghurs went out and attacked yes. Han and then the Han responded That's by right. coming out on the yes. street and attacking yep. the Uyghurs. Mm. And that, that event itself was, was kicked off really by an event that occurred uh, much further away in in in, in, uh, in, in Guangdong, actually, uh, where you had Uyghur migrant a number of Uyghur migrant workers being uh, effectively set upon by a, a group of Han Vigilantes uh, for 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 a an alleged uh, sexual assault uh, on a Han Chinese Chinese woman. Just on that, you, it, it does remind me of my time in China. There is a broad perspective across the Han Chinese. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. He's in the Chinese heartland on the coast um, that Uyghurs are drunk that they're aggressive and violent and that they're underdeveloped as well. And obviously, the, when you interact with a lot of these people, it's clearly not true, but there, there is this sentiment across um, Han Chinese population uh, of Uyghur people mm. that is not very flattering at all, yeah. that tends to lead to these kind of violent yeah, incidents right. that are quite possibly unprovoked. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, and, and again, that that those kind of stereotypes sort of continue uh, to 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 today. And in particular, I mean, we'll probably get to this t- towards the towards the end. It sort of feeds in in important ways into uh, the the current hardline approach in Xinjiang. So the idea of underdevelopment in particular is really interesting about the way in which the party now conceives of. Uh, there's something inherent in, in in Uyghur identity and something inherent to Xinjiang that makes it under, underdeveloped uh, and therefore prone to violence. So it's sort of an interesting uh, connection uh, to, to be made there. But in terms of sort of to go back to, to, to the issue of um, this relationship between violence and Xinjiang and the state, and, and this issue, this idea of, of I suppose, cycles. Um, so from 2009 onwards, there's kind of been there had been a sort of uptick in violence. So you had in 2000 and October 2013 the so-called SUV attack uh, in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, and that was followed by a number of attacks in in, in 2014. So the most uh, uh, large scale, of course, was the Kunming uh, train station attack uh, in March. Uh, 2014, but there was also a number of bombings and attacks in in, Arum- in in Arumqi and Xinjiang sort of a month after that. So those kind of events have s- sort of seemed to form the uh, crucial backdrop to sort of the, the current uh, approach of the Xi Jinping administration to, to Xinjiang. Those events, certainly in my reading, seem to have uh, pushed 
the party towards a much harder line. Uh, in particular, the, there's been some speculation that um, one of the attacks in Urumqi in April 2014 from memory occurred the day that uh, Xi Jinping was making his first official visit uh, to Urumqi and some have suggested you know, that this, this, this kind of made a massive impression on, on Xi in terms of the, the need to really address what had, the Chinese often refer to as, quote-unquote, the Xinjiang problem and about how the party needs to go about resolving it uh, in a sense to really solve it. Uh, in a broad historical sense, no longer just about managing the issue, but to fully resolve it uh, to it to its satisfaction. So there's key a number of key issues in terms of uh, can we map violence to uh, cycles of state reform and repression? And I think and certainly in my chapter, I do I do that. I say, look, there we can. There are a number of correlations between. Uh, Sort of a, the party's liberalisation of its approach to uh, Xinjiang and to, and to the Uyghur, and then a clamping down. Generally, liberalisation is always followed by a, a clamp down historically. Um, the question, uh, sort of the core question then is, you know, what, is, what, what causes the violence? It's one thing to say that these cycles form the backdrop in a sense, um, but what actually causes the violence? And this is where we come into that discussion about whether or not there is uh, organised militant organisations behind violence in Xinjiang. Now, the Chinese uh, state, of course, says that there is. It's named the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, but also more recently the Turkestan Islamic Party, or TIP, as being responsible uh, for many of these attacks. The simple uh, answer here is that we actually just don't know. Um, there's not enough evidence. Uh, certainly the Chinese state has not released any real evidence uh, to pinpoint uh, TIP or ETIM direct involvement in specific attacks in Xinjiang. What we have is a very broad brush series of accusations about that. And, and you, you see some of these accusations being um, made in places like Tibet as well when in the preceding years there were a number of self-immolations on the street by Tibetan monks and uh, just Tibetan citizens and these were actually named as uh, acts of terrorism. Mm. Yet because these were labelled as acts of terrorism, it then causes everyone else to consider any other claims by the Chinese Communist Party of terrorism to be constructed or to be at least questionable. So it's very difficult. Now, just looking at Tibet, that is one part of the border region, another buffer region of China, if you look at it geopolitically, where you do have a minority movement that has been suppressed and attacked by the Communist Party or the Han, however you want to put it. It does have connections to outside of the country. It yeah. is supported by a foreign state and there is a large diaspora that uh, does a lot of Some advocacy, advocacy yeah. and supporting um, for independence. And if you look in the north, another buffer area in uh, Inner Mongolia, you also have something a little bit similar in Mongolia. There is There are some very strong nationalist movements. Mongolia was very closely connected to Soviet Russia during the Cold War, and there is some very strong dissatisfaction with uh, China's um, mining practices in Mongolia and in Inner Mongolia yep. as well. Why are we not seeing similar acts of violence or a similar reaction than we see in um, China's West. Yeah, I mean, there's two interesting examples. I mean, but again, there there are some similarities in terms of Xinjiang and you know Mongolia and Tibet. 
but there's also some quite broad distinctions. So if we're talking about Inner Mongolia, um, one, of, one of the biggest issues certainly in the 20th century has been demographic change, um, really beginning in the late Qing, late Qing period where you have had an influx of Han Chinese settlement uh, to what is now um, Inner Mongolia and that effectively has effectively changed the demographic balance of the region. Uh, Inner Mongolia is now predominantly populated by Han Chinese. Um, you cannot say the same thing for Tibet. Certainly there has been some level of Han Chinese settlement but certainly not on the level of, of what Inner Mongolia has seen. If we look at turn to that demographic issue in Xinjiang, again, there has been a pattern of Han Chinese settlement, but it, but it, it has varied over time. Uh, so in the Maoist period, you had, in a sense, uh, a range of uh, encouraged and or coerced Han Chinese settlement. Uh, of the region, uh, but since uh, the end of the Maoist period, much of the movement of Han Chinese into Xinjiang, certainly from the 1990s onwards, has has been encouraged by the state investing heavily in the economy of, of, of the region and particularly in certain sectors of, of the economy. Um, so it has gone to a point now where you've had a clear demographic shift. Um, depending on which figures you use, if you look at the 2010 census, for instance, um, you have rough parity in Xinjiang between uh, the Uyghur population and, and Han Chinese. Uh, and you would think that that is only going to continue in that, in that direction over time. So this raises questions about the ability of Uyghurs, Tibetans, uh, in particular, to see their future in, in, in what has occurred in Inner Mongolia. And that certainly may be a driver of uh, some tension and, and conflict in those re regions vis-a-vis -vis the state. You, you talk about um, both what's happened in Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia, where you look at a lot of the investment that's been put in economic development that was supposed to lead to modernisation as a tool to socialise independent groups. It sounds somewhat similar to the way that the West has actually seen China itself when they involved it in the World Trade Organization. You know, invest economic development, lead into modernization, they'll become yeah. just like us. Yeah. That failed as well. <laughs> so looking at some of the strategies that China is using, uh, that they're at least claiming uh, counterterrorism um, strategies, what are you seeing that is happening in Xinjiang or the Western part of China? Yeah, I mean, this is a really uh, fascinating topic. Uh, and interestingly, it relates to sort of that, the, the other point you were making before about development uh, and modernization in some ways. Um, you know, we touched upon, upon that before about how the sort of the common stereotypes of the region being backward and so on. And the connection that the party seems to have made between underdevelopment and uh, sort of proneness to, to violence and or, as they like to term it, extremism and terrorism. So the way in which the party is trying to address this is really not just about, uh, I suppose, kinetic counterterrorism measures such as more boots on the ground, more policing, uh, but also, uh, I suppose, a more holistic approach uh, to how the state might go about ensuring security in Xinjiang. So there are a number of different streams. So this one is about economic development, which we've already touched upon, has a long lineage sort of in the last couple of decades. You had the Great Western Development Strategy uh, launched under Jiang Zemin uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, which was about channeling more state-led investment to, to Xinjiang. That's only grown, of course, with the Belt and Road. Belt and Road in some ways can be seen as a direct outgrowth, I think, of, of, of the Great Western Development Strategy. 
The other issue uh, connected to this is really about the way in which the party goes about forms of social control, social and political control. Uh, and of course, the sort of hot button issue at the moment is, of course, the social social credit system. And again, this grows out, I think, in some ways of of the party's connection between underdevelopment and modernisation as being the solution. So you, if you look at some of uh, the, the, the state's um, uh, rhetoric on this, it's about building so-called high-quality citizens. And how do you go about doing that? Well, part of part of the answer appears to be the social credit system, which is, of course, about uh, about inducing, uh, I suppose, appropriate levels of appropriate behaviour or behaviour you wish to see that citizens to pursue uh, through both passive and active measures of, of coercion and control. So, for instance, uh, has been documented about uh, particular, uh, you know, if skipping out on taxi bills, for instance, might give you a, a negative credit score and, and so on. So this is about shaping behaviour. And in, in, by utilising new forms of technology as well. So this links to the final final sort of strand here is is really a high-tech surveillance or police state. Uh, and this can be seen in other regions of China, but certainly there can be a case to be made that a lot of this was pioneered in Xinjiang, certainly uh, since around 2014. You have massive levels of investment in public security spending in the region. Uh, really focused on developing new forms of surveillance control uh, right from sort of traditional modes of of surveillance and control, so really manpower-centric methods such as the so-called neighbourhood policing and and, uh, activities, uh, development of the the sort of springing up of uh, so-called neighbourhood police stations on, you know, city blocks and, and so on. But this has also been linked to uh, the more high-tech elements of this. So uh, deployment of facial recognition t- technology, uh, utilisation of GPS tracking uh, and so on and so forth. So there's a real holistic approach here. It's about, uh, I, in some ways I've started to think of this as kind of a building a, a sort of a high-tech version of the Maoist traditional Maoist mass line of of social coercion and, and control here. So it's very still very, very uh, manpower centric, certainly in Xinjiang, the sort of the, the policing of it, uh, but also the manning of the technology. I mean, it requires uh, thousands of police officers to sort of go through and mine all this data that's being collected. Do, uh, do you think that Xi Jinping may have actually mistaken George Orwell's 1984 as a guidance manual rather <laughs> than a novel? Yeah, I mean... It, it's, it's a really interesting issue to grapple with here about uh, about what the the end product. So, what was the outcome that Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party is seeking here? Um, and, and this sort of brings in the issue of of, of the uh, sort of mass internment camps, or as China calls them now, vocational training centres as well. I mean, as the rest of the world would probably call them concentration well, yeah, camps. This, yeah. I mean, th- th- there is a debate to be had here about how ter- the terminology, I think, matters uh, um, as well. But, you know, what is the ultimate endpoint here? Is the endpoint um, so sort of a, what, what, what some people have termed as a sort of cultural cleansing of the Uyghur people? And this links this back to this idea of, you know, what is the minority question, quote unquote, for the Chinese Communist Party? Um, to my mind, this is about 
a form of cultural cleansing. It's about ensuring Uyghurs, in a sense, uh, remain Uyghur in name only, it seems to me. Um, so in terms of what we know about what occurs in the camps, for instance, you know, uh, intensive forms of surveillance and indoctrination, uh, as well as forms of psychological abuse, trauma, and so on. Uh, so it's, a, it's about transforming uh, individuals away from uh, their inherent, quote-unquote, ethnic characteristics that the party feels threatened by. And in terms of the Uyghur, that is not just about religion. So it's not only just about Islam. It's also about other key markers of Uyghur identity, language, and various other cultural practices as well. So therefore, you're saying that if, if this strategy is successful in, in China's Western region, then it's entirely possible that it could be spread across to other areas and not just ethnic minorities, but also different um, subsections of the Han population, whether that be um, certain sectors of industry or certain geographic areas or so on where there may be dissatisfaction. Yeah. Is it entirely possible that China could be using uh, its Western region as a test bed for these kind of technologies that will eventually roll out across China? And is it also possible that China will look to export its um, Xinjiang solution internationally? Yeah, they're, they're both uh, great, great questions. In terms of the first one about whether Xinjiang is kind of a laboratory here or a test case, I think certainly uh, there are indications that it is. Um, and this is not just about, like you say, not just about ethnic or religious minorities, but um, a wider effort to have this holistic approach to social social control. Um, yet the, the first steps that we've seen in terms of expanding it beyond Xinjiang have actually occurred in, in uh, minority regions. So there have been reports recently of the rollout of similar, not identical, but similar uh, processes in Hui uh, regions, uh, in Gansu and Ningxia, for instance, and also similar approaches to attempts to control and coerce underground Christian congregations as well. Uh, so this is about, uh, I suppose, uh, sort of signals in some ways that as far as the party is concerned, this is about controlling, not even, sorry, not just controlling, but resolving what it perceives to be pathologies uh, amongst uh, the Chinese population, very, very broadly speaking, whether that is proficient, uh, profession of Islam or whether it's profession of other forms of religion or whether, uh, for instance, it is um, uh, attempts at civil society organisations in, in Han majority areas as so well. So you're basically just explaining totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but it, it, what, what's really interesting about it and what, I think what um, makes it uh, qualitatively different from other forms of of totalitarian uh, social control. For instance, people say, "Okay, North Korea comes to mind." Is is the Chinese one is is a very much an encompassing approach to to security, and also, of course, aligned with technological innovation. So, just to pick up there, when you say security, is it security of the nation or is it security of the party? Yeah, I, again, this is a really interesting question, uh, and I would argue that in fact. Uh, and I think many others do as well, that for the party, those two things are one and the same. Um, so when China, if you look at various uh, documents, so there was the uh, national security uh, law in 2015 and the counterterrorism legislation that was passed by the National People's Congress uh, at the end of 2015 as well, the way in which national security is 
defined and framed is very different uh, to the way in which national security would be has been defined, for instance, in the United States, the UK, uh, or Australia, or a number of other states, for, for that matter. The key issue is is the protection of the regime. So it's more uh, when when you talk of national security in the Chinese context, it's probably better and more accurate to talk about state security. Uh, or even yeah, regime security. So it's about maintaining the Chinese Communist Party's monopoly monopoly on power, and this is the way that the party sees it. And, and, and again, this sort of links us links us back to this idea of the party seeing these various pathologies uh, within the Chinese population that it needs to address. Uh, it sort of gives us a, a key insight, I think, into the way in which uh, the party conceives of the nature of security. Now, to to wrap the podcast up and to draw it out into a global perspective, mm. will Western CT arrangements benefit from China's counterterrorism efforts? Where do you see interests coalescing and where do you see them diverging? And are there any particular takeaways for Australian national security policymakers? Yeah, this, again, this is a really interest, interesting question um, and sort of sort of leads me a little bit back to the question that I didn't answer just before about whether China would export uh, this particular model. Great. Well, Digby uh, will be happy yeah, to answer yeah. both his questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, and essentially, um, I think we can see moves, in fact, to export um, the model. So it's important to say that it's not just about the export of the technological side. So it's not just about the export of, you know, the, the facial recognition technology and the systems associated with that. It's also the potential export of the methodology behind it, I think is perhaps what's most potentially troubling. Uh, in, in particular, the, the, the model of the social credit system. Um, so for instance, there's been uh, various reporting of Chinese companies that are heavily involved in uh, the development of that security surveillance state in Xinjiang, so ZTE, Huawei, um, Hikvision is, is another one, um, being involved in key Belt and Road projects, for instance, and Belt and Road agreements. Uh, Venezuela has come up in, in this context, Zimbabwe as well. So it, efforts to abide by, by uh, these Chinese companies to export uh, the particular model and the technology associated with uh, the, the model that's being uh, implemented in Xinjiang and China, China more broadly. Now, in terms of lessons that could be learned uh, and potential uh, potential benefits uh, between China's CT approach and the West, look, I think um, Western policymakers should have. A, a very, uh, a very careful and critical eye uh, when they go into any discussion related to this. So, a number of years ago, uh, sort of around two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, there was some discussion, for instance, that uh, terrorism and counterterrorism could, in fact, form the basis of uh, sort of a stream of U.S.-China dialogue and cooperation. Interestingly enough, that's of course died out in, in, in recent times for, for a number of core reasons. But the fact that it was even floated in the first place, I think, demonstrated a lack of critical thought uh, about a number of key issues. One, about how the Chinese state defines uh, terrorism, how it legislates against terrorism, and also the actual on-the-ground practices of quote-unquote counterterrorism China. All of these things very, uh, are, are very important to, con- to consider as well because the Chinese state most recently has talked about, uh, certainly rhetorically at least, suggested to parts of the developing world uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere that they could benefit from adopting some of the modalities of the Chinese surveillance apparatus 
counterterrorism apparatus. So there seems to be a willingness on behalf of the Chinese state to actively seek to export these, which is something that I don't think we've we've, we've really seen before. And it's something that that the West in particular has to be very careful about because the Chinese have talked, for instance, uh, about the the, the uh, detention camps as kind of a form of predictive, not, not predictive, sorry, preventive uh, counterterrorism. You know, this is, uh, they've tried to equate this to uh, CVE, counter- countering violent extremism programs in the West, for instance, and a uh, number of op-eds in the China Daily, Global Times, for instance, have have cited, you know, French programs of CVE and saying, well, you know, look, our, our program in Xinjiang is just like what, what you guys are doing, um, you know. This is not such a bad thing. It, it really looks a lot more what, like the British did in Malaysia and places like that. The actual concentration camps yeah. breaking up the, the the social connections, indoctrinating, and literally removing anyone they think that could be trouble off the streets until they completely control everything. Yeah, yeah, that's, that 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 seems to be to be exactly right, unfortunately, and and sort of to you know, touch off on a finish off on a, on a, on a uh, sort of depressing note is the fact that we have very little information at the moment about anyone actually being really released from these forms of, of concentration camp or so-called vocational training. I mean, there is uh, some reporting to suggest that some people aren't held in these centres indefinitely. Some might only go in there for sort of, quote unquote, training. They go in there sort of on a daily basis. Re-education. Um, yeah. I mean, whereas there are others who actually have been sentenced to prison terms as well. So there's there's different varieties of detentions and different outcomes. Yet it seems at the moment that this is ultimately, as far as the party is concerned, this is an, a long-term ongoing process that we're not going to see the end of very soon. Professor Michael Clark, thank you very much for coming in and speaking to us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you. And thank you as well for listening. Thank you for the questions that were sent in. Uh, remember, if you want to get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, on our Facebook group using Policy Forum Pod, or send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net. And we will be back again in two weeks for another National Security Podcast. Speak to you then.